welcome to episode 31 of The Playground Project with me, your host, Tanya Pomerantz. As usual, I am delighted and honored to be spending this time with you on the playground. It's a wonderful place to meet new people and make new friends, so please do invite your friends to join us. My guest today is an interesting person, and our career chat encompasses a lot. We touch on mental health, family dynamics, stereotypes, and reinvention, among many other things. That's a lot. So let's get started. Welcome, Ben Park. I am absolutely delighted to have you on the playground with me, with us today. And I'm going to give context because that's the way I start all the interviews. I met Ben through the Thin Mentorship Program a few years back, and he has been working in the government since 2016 in the Canadian government. And he has been working with Natural Resources Canada and ARCAN for four years. Let's just say I am so thrilled to welcome him. And you're going to see he's a really cool dude. Uh, welcome, Ben. Hello, I'm lurking in the audio shadow, and here I appear. Thank you for that very sweet introduction, Tanya. It's uh, it's a real pleasure to be here. I've been really excited ever since I heard that uh, you started uh, a podcast. I've listened to a few different snippets of episodes myself, and yeah, just been super interested in this topic, as you know, for a long time. So happy to be here. Thank you. And I know this is one of the topics that we we connected about when we were, you know, when we started chatting for that first time. So as this is all about purpose, plan and pivot, we're going to go back to high school. So where did you grow up and go to high school? I grew up primarily in the east end of Toronto, in the township of Scarborough. And I went to a high school called David and Mary Thompson Collegiate Institute. Yes, it's. Uh, I wouldn't say it's a very well-known school, but it was certainly a uh, one of the gravitational forces that shaped the neighborhood uh, where I grew up. You know, everybody had heard of Thompson. Everybody had heard of the neighboring technical school, Bendale. And mm -hmm. so, since we were kids, we kind of grew up with the expectation that we we're either going to go to Thompson, which is the default option, and maybe you'll go to college, maybe you'll go to university. But if you go to Bendale, then you're going to be more geared towards the trades and perhaps more practical things. But already the class divide begins there. So, choose your mm -hmm. path wisely, I guess, was the, the message I had heeded uh, from people who had gone before me. And at a young age? I would say so, yeah. Yeah, around like 11 or 12-ish or so, I started uh, recognizing these things. But what did I know <laughs> about the future? We don't know what we're all about at 11 or 12 years old. No. Um, I think at that point, I had been in Canada for about uh, four or five years, right? I came over to, uh, when I was seven years old. And I think I was just... Around that time, developing a real sense of, okay, I'm no longer a child and, and I'm no longer under the same kind of like cultural bubble as I knew when I was growing up, this kind of automatic positive regard or, or, or some kind of attention I would get from Korean adults, you know, I wouldn't get from, you know, Canadians, right? And so I had to really figure out what it meant to be Canadian and how it, what it means, what it requires to fit in, I suppose. 
So I learned English really quickly, uh, and I was able to do that because I was young and my, my brain was a sponge. Hmm. Hmm. But uh, this kind of definition of what it means to be a proper Canadian person and a proper human being overall, that kind of old world Korean idea of what it means to be a human being, I think they were starting to kind of meld together in, of course, a very, uh, uh, I should introduce, a very religious kind of uh, context as well. So you said a positive regard from Korean adults. Yeah. What does that look like? It means you're part of an in-group, right? So you're still malleable and you st you're still just a ball of potential at that point. And so all the adults are, of course, jaded as hell. <laughs> and um, you get that way, crotchety. That's a universal cultural thing, I think. Mm -hmm. But the way that you treat hmm. children and your own people, I think, is... Uh, while there are similarities across certain cultures, especially um, Asian cultures, there's still kind of a very much an endogenous, in-group kind of dynamic. You are Korean, not Japanese, not Chinese. You are Christian, not Muslim, not Jewish, not those atheists, you know? Mm. And so, so long as you're going to church, ah, oh, you're being a good boy, you're being a good boy, ah, oh, yeah, mm. here. And so they take care of each other, right? It's a community growing up in right. like a, a religious community. I think, yeah, everybody kind of craves that to a certain extent, this kind of sense of belonging, or at least I've been raised to assume that's the case. But around that time when I was 11 or 12, my father, who's now a pastor, was still very much in the middle of his journey, his personal journey and spiritual quest to become a pastor himself, and started taking us to different churches where he had a higher and higher position. Um, mm. And so he could start like getting some experience and being and ministering. So I was taken away, I guess, from my core group of friends were all Korean, Canadian, second generation, perhaps recent immigrant kids. And uh -huh. I had to contend with the fact that, okay, I either fit into this new home, Scarborough, where it's a primarily, I think I say ca the Caucasian population is a minority there right? Uh, demographically okay. speaking. And so I realized mm -hmm. that pretty quickly. There are a lot of uh, Sri Lankan diaspora in Scarborough. Mm -hmm. And then once, uh, of course, the, the various wars in the Middle East began, we started seeing a lot of people from Afghanistan, Pakistan. And so that kind of created a bit of the cultural milieu. So yeah, defining myself in both opposition but also in congruence with these various cultural groups and expectations and, and ideals was interesting. I chose my side then because I needed to know how to belong to a certain group uh, before I really uh, started to define my individuality. But yeah, those were some formative years, that's for sure. I look back on those years with a lot of fondness, but a lot of what we would consider or call trauma nowadays you know, stems from that period. It's just growing pains. Very much. And you mentioned belonging. And that really struck a chord with me because I think that that's what everybody wants to be part of a group that loves them and wants them to be there. And it's a mutual kind of coexistence together, right? Yeah, absolutely. Hmm. And so, so there you are dealing with all of these challenges, realities, you know, situations. How would you characterize your experience of being in high school? Mm, so, in high school, that's when all of these different threads I mentioned earlier came to a head with a combination of my scientific biological reality of exploding hormones, you know? Mm. Uh, so I was growing into puberty, and yet I wasn't allowed to acknowledge that because I wasn't, you know, a man uh, mm -hmm. as defined by my cultural background. 
Um, and so I had to suppress all of those things and really focus on what made my parents happy, I guess, uh, which is uh, academic success in high school. Um, having a lot of friends is kind of like a, the unfortunate side effect, the byproduct of being good at what you do, I suppose. Uh, what it, do you mean? Like, that's what my parents thought. Like, they would only pick out the things they wanted to brag about to mm -hmm. fellow Korean adults, right? Yeah. And it was always about my academic performance. Uh, I wasn't particularly good at sports, so they couldn't mention that. And of course, if I were successful in my you know, ability to make new friends, that's not something to really boast about. It's, uh, it's just something like, oh, okay, yeah, he happens to have a lot of friends and a lot of distractions from him doing his own work, oh, you know? Right. That kind of thing. So I was typecasted pretty heavily as the Asian kid in my high school cohort. There weren't a lot of other Asian males around. And if they were, people automatically kind of drew the boundary between you're a fobby Asian versus you're a good assimilated Asian. You know, you're white. You know, you're one of us, right? What was the first one? You're a... A fobby, fresh off the boat. Uh, so oh, yeah. Okay. So you're either like, yeah, <laughs> Fu Manchu, or you are like that guy from The Walking Dead, Glenn or whatever, Stephen Yun. Okay. Yeah. Okay, question for you then. When it comes to Asian stereotypes, certainly from a female perspective, this is what I've been told, you're either the sexy Asian or the smart Asian. Hmm. Okay, maybe those are some newer archetypes. And I'm glad sexy is up there now. You Isn't know? it nice? Yeah. It really is nice. Because uh, not to bash on Stephen Yoon at all, by the way, I, th I personally think he's handsome. And if I were ever compared to him, I'd consider that a great flattery. Yeah, back then, there was no such thing as a sexy Asian guy in school, unless you were super into anime, K-pop, and other Asian kinds of things. It, it was mm. kind of a niche thing. I think Asian male masculinity has been suppressed yeah, I keep using that word, you know, as, as if uh, mm -hmm. I'm a jack, I'm a jack in the box just waiting to pop. <laughs> I think, you know, which I think is a very good imagery for our listeners to have as they're listening to this, you know, just <laughs> imagine a Korean jack in the box. So when you were in high school, dealing with all of this, yeah. did you join things? Were you a joiner or, mm -hmm. you know, goer tour thing like dances and stuff like that? Was I uh, engaged in my community in some capacity? I would say probably not. I think the way that I had learned how to join was to be loyal and to be dedicated, right? Kind of like how I was in my organized religious context. And so I kind of just transfer that to my social context where I focus on one thing and I'm, I'm not good at keeping up with <laughs> multiple allegiances, so to speak. And this is another way for me to be roundabout about the fact that I'm a very lazy person. <laughs> but I was a band geek and I embraced that pretty wholeheartedly. And by band geek, I don't mean a music lover writ large because... Glee was anathema to me. Uh, and we didn't have a Glee club because, oh. uh, you know, I don't think Scarborough is particularly well known <laughs> as, a, as a gleeful um, location in the world. Anyway, so was I a joiner? I joined senior concert band. I joined the jazz band. And I joined like a high school band when I was in grade nine. And we just played uh, Led Zeppelin and grunge as much as I could um, throughout that time. And what was your, your yeah. instrument? I was a bass guitarist and a vocalist, so we really wanted to be like Rush, uh, like, like a power trio, right? And I think it made a yeah. lot of sense at the time. But yeah, I, I just wanted to be like Geddy Lee, you know? And uh, not a lot of people say that, but here we are. I want to be an awesome bassist who had a unique voice 
and change the face of Canadian rock and roll, I guess. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Well, that, I don't even know how to follow up on that one. But when you were in school, like, did you know what you were going to do after? Well, you said if you went yeah. to this particular one, you go to university or college. Yeah. I wouldn't be alive today if I had chosen the path of being a rock star at the age of 14, <laughs> which I really wanted to uh, for one reason or another. But um, eventually, reason gave way, and uh, I went and followed the footsteps of my brother. He went to the University of Toronto. He got into the engineering science program, which is like the most difficult program, I think. Um, my brother's extremely smart. Uh, he always has been. He's always been reading, just devouring books, both fiction and nonfiction. Hmm. So you can clearly tell he's both artistically gifted. Uh -huh. He's got a, an artsy brain, but he's also got the mathematical and like technical brain. So wow. I couldn't follow. I couldn't quite follow up with that. I didn't want to look like a chump. So um, <laughs> I uh, chose political science instead and decided to really delve into my social skills, if you will, and pursued social science, political science, and archaeology. As majors. Okay. So poli sci and archaeology. Hmm. Yes. Yes. What did you think you were going to do after university? The general gist of what I wanted to do was I'm passionate about history. Mm -hmm. I'm passionate about those kinds of stories that can't be told by just reading a, a book. Mm -hmm. Um and I wanted to have, I guess, the practical know-how of a policy-minded individual. Um to be able to do something about it. Hmm. Let's say I, at the time I was considering becoming like an international lawyer. So maybe I'd go to the United Nations, uh, UNESCO, and then and deal in the repatriation of cultural artifacts taken during colonial times. Um, hmm. Or I'd work to preserve our archaeological sites or like important historical sites, uh, things like that, I suppose. Hmm. But yeah. So there you were, you graduated from university, you thought you had your idea. Yep. What happened? Whatever happened, it wasn't good. <laughs> Clearly, no. I can look back on those days now with both appreciation and a bit of hubris, obviously. I think um, I look back at that time in my life, the 20-year-old version of me, and I have a lot of empathy. And if I were to hang out with 20-year-old Ben today, I'd obviously get quite frustrated and quite paternalistic. I'll probably chastise him on a few things. I'll get tired by the evening. I'll, I'll probably uh, head to bed early and he'll go to the pub. <laughs> but I would still appreciate that time. I would still be able to converse with him like sort of like adult. We'll disagree on a lot of things, obviously. But hmm. a combination of things happened. I'm not going to uh, say that... Um, some grand career opportunity came along and I made everything work and I'm the best version of myself today because of it or anything like that. But obviously, we're not just creatures of work and economics. We don't think practically. We don't think rationally all the time. Mm -hmm. A lot of like personal stuff obviously happens. I mean, that's what I mm -hmm. consider to be life. And uh, yeah. yeah, a lot of personal things happened where I had to leave my home because my disagreements with my parents over religion became far too severe. Mm. Um, and I was going through a, a mental health crisis as a result of that. Mm. And I found some work to get me through school. Tuition wasn't awesome back then, but I think it's, uh, it was more affordable than it is for university students today. 
Mm-hmm. So I was able to get by with a part-time job making just above minimum wage and still be able to pay back my student loans within uh, like five years after I graduated, you know? Okay. So yeah, it just kind of made things work. And I thought I would pursue archaeology, but I was so concerned about my finances and not being able to afford things that mm. uh, I turned down all the excavation opportunities uh, that came my way. Um, so I just closed that door on myself, which is too bad. If I had just gone to even one excavation in my life, I think my view on things would be very different. Why did you turn them down? Like, wh- were they going to be paying you? No, that's the thing. I had to be able to afford it on my own, at least these kinds of like initial excavations, mm. right? Um, okay. I didn't hear about any scholarships for for students at the time for going on their first dig or something. Yeah, I just kind of took the um, alternative course, which is just to stay around the University of Toronto and practice those skills Mm -hmm. on the lawn, right? Um, Instead of actually going to a historical site or a prehistoric site. So that's too bad. Then I turned to political science and I didn't want to stick around in Toronto because it reminded me too much of like painful things. And so I moved to Ottawa where they gave me a pretty decent scholarship to attend their master's program. Congratulations on getting a scholarship. That's a big deal. Yes, thank you. And um, So I went to the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs based in Carleton University in Ottawa. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'd say that was a that was a very practical program for people who wanted to work, which is good for me because I needed the stability eventually. But I didn't know what I wanted for myself going into the ma- that master's. My long-term relationship fell apart uh, around that time. Yeah, just kind of had to start fresh, make some new connections and new core memories and things like that. And uh, I lived in Ottawa for seven years. And that's where I met my now fiance. That's where I got my start in my career. Um, whether I really wanted to do that at the time or not, I, I realized now it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's gotten me where I am today. And for that, I am grateful. Let's talk pivoting, mister. Yes, pivoting. Let's pivot towards the pivotal moments because I think it was a good segue um, into mm-hmm. it. Like, not not everybody falls in love with their career and, and not everybody, well, I, I think most people uh, aren't infatuated and think their jobs are the best thing that's ever happened to them. People obviously find fulfillment in various different aspects of their role, right? And I, mm-hmm. I would say I've found that for my job and how I define my career path moving forward. I am 31 now and uh, it took took many years uh, after starting my job in the government to really figure all these things out. And I still haven't got it all figured out, obviously. But yeah, when I first joined the government and I had the opportunity to be bridged in to my role uh, from a a co-op student, I turned it down and I was really afraid to commit. I was really afraid to commit. Mm. I thought that I was going to be leaving Ottawa imminently. I had finished my master's at this point and I didn't know where I wanted to go. I remember talking to prospective career mentors at the time and to my colleagues saying, oh, maybe I should just, you know, send myself into exile because I feel like I get, I've given up on a lot of different uh, paths already. I gave up academia uh, pretty much right after undergrad. Um, and that's a whole story in and of itself why I gave up the prospect of going back to Korea as an international lawyer and leaving, living my parents' dream because, you know, I didn't want my parents' dream anymore. I wanted my own. And I didn't want to stay in the government because, well, 
I want I, I did my degree in international affairs. I should get some international experience first. I should go somewhere. I, I didn't go on those excavations mm. when I was a, still an archaeology student. And I'm doing the same thing to myself now. Like, why am I always thinking about how to pay the rent instead of actually living my life? Why am I so uh, letting fear guide everything, right? I was afraid mm. of being afraid of everything. <laughs> yeah. I really wanted to maybe get like a humanitarian organization job. I wanted to get like on the ground experience. And that's what a lot of my um, fellow Nipsians, as we call ourselves, were doing. And mm-hmm. I was really envious. But again, I got another opportunity to get bridged into a, to a different department. And at the time, I really needed the money. And I was really interested in the subject matter itself, which is cybersecurity. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I just kind of went for it. And then after that, um, the main debate among the people that I was surrounded with was getting the next level, getting that promotion. Like, how are you hustling? You can't be daydreaming about like being better than everybody else. You actually have to know what the hell you're talking about. So don't look like an, an idiot in front of somebody else because that person is going to take your promotion or take that mission abroad from you. So do it. So yeah, I started applying to a bunch of different pools and I eventually got into one. Uh, at Natural Resources Canada. I -hmm. didn't get into the job that it was advertising for, but the way that it works in the government of Canada, you get into a pool and then you kind of get fished out by the pool person Mm -hmm. until the pool is closed. Then you just have to go home and dry yourself off and try it again. Yeah, my director now, manager then, uh, really took a chance on me. I must say, I came in there. I remember the interview well. I didn't poop the bed, but I remember saying a lot of things that were still very much steeped in academic jargon. Right, mm. talking about like uh, liberalism and realistic politics, uh, you know. And uh, <laughs> my manager told me later on, like, yeah, we had a, a nice chuckle afterwards, but you know, I, we still went with you because, well, we saw the mental agility among other mm-hmm. things. Mm-hmm. You were at least making the connections. And yep. uh, the questions we asked about, like how you would handle a certain situation, your judgment, mm-hmm. it was sound. It was based on logic and it was not based on just trying to make yourself look good. Yeah. So she took a chance on me and that was my first exposure to like an official international team. And I've been there ever since. Hmm. Although I considered leaving for a different team or leaving the government altogether many, many, many times. But now I find myself in a pretty good place. After four years, and let's say it started to be good around three and a half. Yeah. Okay. You know, your point about fear. Yeah. You remind me of a quote from the American version of The Office. Fear plays an interesting role in our lives. How dare we let it motivate us? How dare we let it into our decision making, into our livelihoods, into our relationships? Mm. Yeah. I, I, I would say the same thing about several different emotions and instincts. Hmm. Perhaps we can put a gradation on these things. Uh, uh, my most dependable crutch, which is still toxic in many situations, is anger. Um. Decision-making or reacting out of anger, right? right? And I've become aware that it's a secondary emotion that actually is like a nice hot candy wrapper around the emotion of fear, right? Right. And fear probably overlays hurt and trauma, right? Yeah. Like real lived experiences. You are the way you are for a reason. You know, you weren't, you, know, you didn't come out of a vacuum. And yeah, uh, fear could be a gift. 
without mm-hmm. fear, how could we possibly protect ourselves? Fear shouldn't always be the enemy. I guess the the dose determines the poison at all times, and that's a very unsatisfying answer for a hot blooded Korean man like myself. <laughs> but you did do something, and you haven't mentioned it. I did do that thing that which I did not mention. Um, Are you going to mention it? I I think I will. Uh, here it comes. Uh, I took something called Leave Without Pay, LWOP, which is something that's uh, unique to the government. It's essentially like um, like an unpaid sabbatical, you know, mm-hmm. and I romanticized it as a, as a time of exile, self-imposed exile. So it was the height of the global pandemic, as we recently experienced, and mm-hmm. I was dealing with it much the same way as many other people were. Like we were looking, to, we were imagining greener pastures, and the internet convinced us that it was within reach. Uh, I got into a algorithmic uh, rabbit hole of like self improvement and craftsmanship. I, I started to get really fixated on this idea mm-hmm. of having a meaningful connection to the fruits of my labor and therefore owning my own labor. And perhaps the reason why I felt so disaffected from the economic system that sustains me, capitalism, is because my job in the government doesn't seem to produce the fruits of my labor Mm -hmm. that which I can actually taste. I have to Uh write my name out of anything that I produce, you know, and... um, You know, like, because it's the government's decision. I just provide advice. And then, and um, I can't really take pride in a lot of the individual things that come up. That's that's one way to tell it. I'm not sure if I, how much I really believe this, but yeah. So that's kind of what happened. I wanted to be good at things, and uh, I wanted yeah. to live a meaningful, examined life. I did learn a lot of things uh, in that year, and some of it was carpentry. Uh, so now I have a little wood workshop, which uh, looks impressive. And I go in there every once in a while, and I swing my mallet around. But a- apart from that, I kind of transfer those skills into to other avenues. And I met people who had left their government cushy jobs and pursued carpentry in their 30s and 40s and mm-hmm. uh, were making a living from it. Yeah, it, it gave me hope that the people can absolutely do this. There's no too late, you know. As for myself, I guess I typecasted myself once again as a very limited individual that needed to prove something. But now looking back, I kind of realized, hey, that was just such a out of left field thing. I just kind of really enjoyed seeing people's faces when I told them that I was doing this thing. Mm-hmm. And now I can come over to their place and help them build their dock or something and not just mm-hmm. be that guy who likes to talk but can't walk the walk, you know? Well, I'm still a little bit of that, but uh, at least when it comes to learning how to use a chisel and other power tools, yeah, look at me. I, I learned things. I am not a tool gal, so I think that people who can use tools effectively are very admirable. And, you know, I'm going to give a shout out to my beloved husband, who I think is a phenomenal woodworking guy. And so I have a lot of respect for people with with that strength and talent. So shout out to you, too. Props to you, Ben, for that. And thank you. So, well, it's meaningful. What do you think looking back? I mean, what are you 31? Did you say? Yes. Okay. so. That's not a 50-year-old, you know, career, (laughs) but looking back on what you've done so far, what brings you the most pride? It's obviously, it comes differently for different people and the source of pride. Some people, I think, take pride in their competency and perhaps mastery uh, over a certain aspect uh, of their work, Uh, the process, the development 
of a creative process where they can make new things, bring something out of nothing, or dealing with people, you know, what have you. And for you? Yeah, I would say for me, it's uh, it's definitely not a singular event. That's kind of like the culmination of my magnum opus. There, there have been some accomplishments, shall we say, that I pulled together, uh, which I didn't think I was able to do. And perhaps uh, mm. in the most basic sense, that's what gives me the most pride. Just um, having started from a place of fear, from a place mm-hmm. of self-limitation and mm-hmm. uh, needing to prove myself and fear of exposure, the imposter syndrome, so to speak. And then not necessarily doing anything particularly extraordinary and still coming out with a lot of compliments, but also having done the thing that I set out to do. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. even if I failed in, uh, in certain elements and not everything went hunky-dory, not beating myself up over that thing and yeah. incorporating it into my um, lived experiences and my modus operandus moving forward. Yeah. Well, and you know that that's a, having a growth mindset, right? Oh, yeah. I heard about that. I should really try that. I think you're <laughs> demonstrating that you have one. But if you want to read a little bit about it, Carol Dweck is the author of Mindset. And for me, that was a really helpful read. So we're going to wrap things up. My question to you is, you, the the person that you are, do you have kind of a favorite motivational quote or, or words that you live by? It was in the unlearning that I learned the most. I think all of these different kinds of perhaps dogmatic ways of thinking, all the blind spots that I'm checking in my psyche to make sure that I'm living my life the best way possible. How am I winning at life? All these like different like measures, yeah, arbitrary limits again that I set upon my my life and and the things that I deserve and all that. It's eventually going to be unlearned. <laughs> it's going to be modified. And I'm going to question the assumptions that I've held so dear. And it's in that kind of debilitating experience that I'm eventually going to take the most away from, right? And so that seems to disarm and assuage a lot of my fear about the future and whether I'm doing things right. Hmm. And here's where my brain goes. You know, when older people are needing to go into a retirement home or something like that, Mm-hmm. They basically edit all their possessions and they're left only with a very small amount of things that are most significant to them. And I feel that that on some kind of way metaphorically represents the unlearning that you've spent your whole life collecting things, whether it's collecting dogmas or ideologies or what have you, or whether it's collecting cow statues or anything like that, but it's getting rid of the things that aren't serving you anymore. Do you think that makes any sense? Yeah, I think so. There's going to be a lot of clutter, both physical and mental, (laughs) as we uh, progress through life. Eventually, we're going to have to weed out the things that don't matter quite as much. And yeah, so I'm telling you, Ben, all of our conversations, I find them stimulating and thought provoking. So thank you. Thank you for for coming on and, and hanging out on the playground like this, because this is to me exactly what the playground is all about. It's about having these conversations, some deeper than others, and just kind of really getting into who we are. And thank you for sharing that. You've done that. Thank you for having me. It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much, Ben, for hanging out with us on the playground today. 
I promised you an interesting chat, and I believe we delivered that. Our career chat included a lot. Ben spoke about belonging, culture, and identity, and what it was like being typecast as the Asian kid in his cohort. We talked about the smart versus sexy Asian stereotypes and what it meant to suppress your feelings. He spoke candidly about his mental health crisis and his need to leave home as a result of disagreements with his father. And he also spoke about how his future career was impacted by his financial challenges and how he closed doors to his future by turning down archaeological opportunities. We talked about what it was like to be living someone else's dream, not his own, and what it was like to be motivated by fear. I shared one of my favorite quotes from the character Robert California in the American version of The Office. Fear plays an interesting role in our lives. How dare we let it motivate us? How dare we let it into our decision-making, into our livelihoods, into our relationships? Speaking of fear, Ben also spoke about the role of anger in his life and how it masked the presence and the motivation of fear. We also touched on the reward that came from being his authentic self during his job interview with the government. And, you know, a few years later, the ensuing leave without pay he took for his self-imposed exile. We discussed the imposter syndrome and his motivating words. It was in the unlearning that I learned the most. Thank you, Ben, for giving me a lot to think about and consider. I appreciate your honesty and openness in sharing your career and life journey and wish you the very best as they both continue to unfold. Speaking of the very best, I'm so excited to invite you to hang out on the playground with me again next week. My mystery guest is a force to be reckoned with, and I can't wait to introduce you to her. Please remember to tell a friend, or more than one, about the podcast. And if you would like to share your story on the playground, please do send me an email. I'm at Tanya at PuddleJumpCoaching.com. That's Tanya at PuddleJumpCoaching.com. Until next time, I wish you a beautiful week of learning and unlearning. See you again on the playground next week when we will jump into the future together. <music>